Hello, I'm Kate Chabot, and this is SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and international affairs. This week, a new head for Britain's military. What challenges await Admiral Sir Tony Radekin as he becomes Chief of the Defence Staff? How should Britain handle China as Taiwan warns of the growing risk of war? There is a real sense that time is running out for Taiwan um, to maintain the status quo. And what could the rest of the world learn from the way the army trains its leaders? I think it's someone ultimately that has moral courage and their values sit at the core of their character and they live those every day. Admiral Satoni Radekin says he's humbled to be appointed as Chief of the Defence Staff. By his own admission, he takes over at a time of enormous change. Later in this week's SITREP, we'll explore the challenges facing this new generation of military leaders. But let's start with the man who'll lead the forces in the coming years. Well, joining me is Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, we talked last week about the candidates for CDS and the first Sea Lord was seen as the favourite. Yes, he was. He's regarded as somebody who takes transformation seriously, which is what the forces are all about now. I mean, he began, when he became first Sea Lord in 2019, he started a programme on Royal Navy transformation which uh, is not that easy. Um, They've had a very good settlement in terms of getting all of the equipment they think that they want between now and 2025. But it's also broken a bit of China in the process of getting that transformation program through. It is quite painful and he's shown that he can do it. And he's got a good background in joint forces. I mean, he was director of joint force development in 2012 and he was the chief of staff at Joint Forces Command in 2016. Well, let's talk of the challenges ahead. Admiral Satoni Radican says the forces have to seize the opportunity presented by the big uh, changes outlined earlier this year. What's likely to be first on his agenda? Well, top of his agenda is all the transformational challenges, which which apply most heavily for the army. The Air Force knows where it's going in terms of transformation, but it's got a big job to get there by 2030. But the army um, has got a much bigger job to perform. And so I think he will be concerned about that. But in geopolitical terms, of course, um, building on the, re- the, the tilt to the Indo-Pacific will be important. But he's also got to reassure our um, NATO allies that we are not taking our eye off off the ball in Europe and the North Atlantic. And that's going to be quite a difficult balancing act for any CDS to perform. How is he regarded? What kind of a leader is he? He's a very personable sort of character. He's very, He's got a great sense of humour. He's very approachable, very easy to, to talk to. And he spends time with people. I think he, he's, he's a good communicator. Um, but he's also shown that he's got a, quite a lot of inner steel. So I think that there is that sense that if people find him friendly, don't underestimate him because he can be tough as well. And he replaces General Sir Nick Carter, who has been praised by Boris Johnson for decades of steadfast duty. How will you reflect on his career? I think Nick Carter was a very thoughtful CDS. He, he wasn't the sort of CDS who was regarded as a soldier, soldier, sailor, sailor, and airman's airman in the way that some previous CDSs might have been. But he exactly straddled the role of, of senior commander with the political realm. He knew how to sell the military to the political realm. And 
he is one of the most innovative thinkers that I know of in senior military circles. And he's tried to put that into effect. And the issue, of course, for all CDSs, as we've said before, is that you're not there for so long to make a big difference. But I think Nick Carter did make a difference. And he has put the integrated operational concept firmly at the heart of British defence thinking. And in years to come, I think people will refer back to the Carter idea, the Carter doctrine, the Carter integrated operational concept. I think it'll have his name attached to it in years to come. Of course, there's um, a vacancy now going to the end of November at the the top of the Royal Navy. What kind of challenges will that person have? Delivering on what is a a very ambitious programme now. I mean, the Royal Navy is looking at a whole new classes of ships. So more frigates, more destroyers, more submarines. It's got to actually uh, work with this AUKUS deal now with Australia uh, and the United States and to produce a a, a suite of other support ships. So it's got to make bring those... uh, uh, challenges forward, bring those uh, building uh, projects on, but also to be properly transformative because we're only here talking about shipbuilding and hulls. It's what you put in the hulls that really matters. It's the technology that ships carry more than the ships themselves. And a future first sea lord has really got to get down to that because I think those are the bits that were, were missing from the, the big shipbuilding announcements that the government made last year. Well, among the items in Tony Radican's in-tray will be the West's tilt towards the Indo-Pacific, where this week there have been warnings of a war over the future of Taiwan, which could be on the cards in just a few years. Beijing has dispatched dozens of planes every day over the past week, and Taiwan's president has appealed to the world to stand with them. Nicholas Smith is the Asia correspondent of the Daily Telegraph, based in Taiwan's capital, Taipei. She told me China's actions have alarmed leaders there. They haven't actually been breaching Taiwan's sovereign airspace, but they've been coming close enough for for Taiwan to be forced to uh, scramble its own military jets in response. We've seen some 150 aircraft coming into this zone, and these have included nuclear-capable bombers and fighter jets. And obviously that is creating a lot of alarm for Taiwan's government. Uh, On the ground, people are generally just getting on with their lives and and not thinking too much about it, although it, it has obviously been making headlines here. But Taiwan's response is becoming more and more robust. You've seen the Taiwanese government accuse China of harassment and um, demanding that it stop stoking tensions. You've seen similar responses from the United States. On Wednesday, we heard the starkest warning yet from Taiwan's defence minister, who said that China will be capable of mounting a full-scale invasion of Taiwan by 2025. And he described military tensions between Taipei and Beijing as being at their worst in more than 40 years. And what's the view inside Taiwan of why this is happening now? There are multiple different views. Uh, nobody really knows uh, the true reasons or, or, or what President Xi Jinping is thinking. But one theory is that uh, he has placed an emphasis on testing China's forces over the past few years. It has been building up its armed forces and, and naval forces. They largely remain untested in battle. And analysts believe that Xi Jinping has given the order that pilots need to train and they need to be doing more active drills for possible scenarios of of an invasion. And the president of Taiwan has 
warned other countries of the wider consequences were China to move against it. That's correct. Uh, this isn't just a an issue for Taiwan itself, even though you know this is uh, a democracy of some 24 million people who have a voice and and they have agency over who controls their country. It has much wider implications for the Indo-Pacific. Taiwan is a major semiconductor producer. It, it produces um, the the most semiconductors in the world, and it's and it's key to global supply chains. But also, it would completely change the game in the Indo-Pacific if Beijing had control over Taiwan. It would mean that it would have its own Pacific coastline. It would be able to launch submarines off of Taiwan's coastline. Um, And that would definitely create more tensions in the region. And it would definitely uh, give Beijing much more influence over the Indo-Pacific. And China has been open about its desire to seize control of Taiwan for decades. Is there a real fear that this time things are different? There is definitely concern that Xi Jinping is stepping up preparations for a major move on Taiwan. Analysts believe that the threat is is probably is this is probably the biggest threat in decades against Taiwan. And certainly from what we've seen from his military build-up and just the rhetoric coming out of Beijing, it looks like the possibility of, of a major move on Taiwan is becoming increasingly likely. Whether that's a full-scale invasion or not, people don't really no, there are many other ways to put pressure on Taiwan through blockades, through um, cyber attacks, through cutting off its access to oil and gas and, and, and creating panic among the public. There is a real sense that time is running out for Taiwan um, to maintain the status quo. And that is why there is a, also a buildup of, of deterrence capabilities on, on the Taiwanese side. Nicholas Smith in Taiwan. So what lies behind the Chinese pressure on Taiwan? Professor Rana Mitter is an expert on modern China at Oxford University. I think, Kate, the short term answer is that it's currently the week of China's major national holiday. And in fact, there's a week or so of vacation time. So one of the ways in which the nationalism that is commemorated by that particular anniversary is noted is by making it clear that the Chinese Communist Party has no intention of allowing what it regards as the last unfinished business of the Cold War, that is the unification of the island of Taiwan with the Chinese mainland, to lie fallow. And to that extent, the sending of this very large number of fighter aircraft into the Taiwan air defence zone is a sort of down payment, you might say, on that particular intention. Mm, And leaders in Taiwan say China might be capable of invading by 2025 just because they could. Does that mean they will? Well, they could be capable. I think it's worth noting that Taiwan, for very good reasons, has leaders who are keen to try and make sure the rest of the world sees the potential threat of a Chinese occupation of the island. And therefore, to some extent, it's in their interest to flag up the potential possibility of China invading. It's worth noting that the invasion, even in a few years' time, wouldn't be the easiest thing to um, achieve. Apart from anything else, you'd have to amass very large numbers of troops on the southeast coast of China in Fujian province and get them across the water. And I think satellites would notice that. Having said that, I think that when the Taiwan leaders are saying this, they're actually making a bigger statement about the world's intentions. They're reminding the world that Taiwan is not just a small island off the coast of China. It's also these days, of course, a multi-party liberal democracy. It's a society which makes its own political choices freely and that therefore the 
possibility that such an entity might be invaded and occupied is something they feel that Western leaders should be concerned with. It's not just an Asian matter. Of course, the US says it supports Taiwan, but would America really engage militarily were China to move against it? So the ambiguity in the answer to that question, would America really engage, is precisely the guessing game that geopoliticians, uh, probably in America itself, but also in China, in Taiwan, in Japan, all around the region and the wider world are asking themselves. And to some extent, it's the ambiguity of the answer. People aren't quite sure whether or not there would be a tipping point or not. That is the point, because I think the aim of the American policy is to not to make it an absolute red line that an attack on Taiwan would necessarily be met by force, but to leave it just strong enough in Chinese minds in Beijing that if they were to make a move on Taiwan, it might bring down the might of the American alliance on them to give them pause for thought. We've seen the US, UK and others involved in military exercises in the South China Sea. That's always going to trigger Chinese anger, isn't it? Well, of course, the other element that's come within the last few weeks and rather blindsided people was AUKUS, the Australia-United Kingdom-United States Pact, which is still to have its its details filled in, but essentially is about providing support for Australian nuclear-powered submarines in the South China Sea. The major point about the AUKUS um, Pact, uh, as far as I'm concerned, is not so much about the hardware. Of course, the submarines are an important element, but they haven't actually been built yet. And of course, there's plenty of hardware bobbing around both on and under the South China Sea. The bigger point is about the challenge it throws to China. And if China was really as secure in the Asia-Pacific region as it likes to make out, then there would have been, you know, half a dozen, a dozen neighbouring countries in Asia standing up and saying, you know what, United States, get yourself out of, uh, of the Pacific. We don't want you here. In fact, of course, it turns out that many of the swing states in the region, Singapore would be a good example, Malaysia would be another, are actually, I think, quietly or not so quietly, fairly pleased that if Chinese economic power continues to be a reality in Asia, and it is, then maybe US-backed military power is the other half of the equation. So that's a dilemma for Beijing to work out in the wake of AUKUS, in the wake of these changes, how do they get the neighbours not just to respect them, but to love them? That is a tough call. And if you were to take a step back at the current situation and look at it from a distance, China has staked its claim to Taiwan over decades. Do you feel this is different? Well, it has waxed and waned, this Chinese claim on Taiwan. It was very big under Chairman Mao back in the 1940s and 50s. But then actually, he basically kept quiet about it after that. He didn't bring it up very much. And in fact, the consensus that there's been for a very long time uh, that Taiwan would not declare independence and that China would lay claim to it but not make an attack on it has stayed for a long time. Is it different now? Well, we hear a lot of rhetoric from China about taking back Taiwan, but we've also in the last few days, President Biden and President Xi have had a conversation in which a return to something like that kind of uneven but long-lasting status quo is maybe where they both want to be. I think that Beijing would like it to be understood that they want Taiwan back at some point, but the date does keep shifting. The Tension keeps being rephrased. And I think that they realize that saying you want Taiwan is one thing, but what happens on day one, what happens on day two, what happens after it's been done, that is the kind of thing that could really upset the still rather fragile economic and social consensus in China itself. And therefore, I think Beijing is maybe more cautious than it lets on when it uses this extremely confrontational rhetoric that we've heard rather a lot of in the last week or so. Professor Rana Mitter, well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Michael, last week we sent a frigate through the Taiwan Strait. The carrier strike group is still in the area. 
Admiral Sir Tony Radekin talks about delivering a global force. This is going to be one of the first big tests, isn't it? Yes. It's very interesting that he should be declared CDS, as it were, just at this moment. I mean, last week, HMS Richmond went through the Taiwan Straits, making a detour deliberately to go through on its way to rendezvous with the rest of the carrier group in Vietnam. And the last time we sent a Type 23 or a warship of that status through the Taiwan Strait was 2008. But other countries are doing the same in Canada, France, Australia. They've all now, as it were, challenged Chinese assertions by deliberately sending ships through on the freedom of navigation operations, FONOPs, through the Taiwan Strait. So you can expect this to happen rather more. And every time it happens, the Chinese will ramp up their psychological game against Taiwan in the in the airspace. And that's what we're seeing now. Every time a ship goes through, they conduct more air air operations within Taiwan's um, air defence identification zone. And as much as this might not be a serious threat of imminent invasion, if either side makes a miscalculation, it could escalate very quickly. It could, but I'm not too worried about uh, miscalculation issues particularly because, I mean, all of the information we have, for instance, on the uh, carrier strike group that's going through is they say the bridge-to-bridge communications, the the actual communications between commanders of their ships have been very um, professional, almost friendly, very, very, very careful. And the Chinese have, have observed all of the protocols actually there on the water. Their media don't present that at all. The media have a completely different story to tell, but the military, Chinese military, have been very careful. So I don't think there's too much of a danger of miscalculation. But one reason for, as it were, moving into somebody's airspace is to get them to turn all of their air defence on so you can see what it looks like. And another reason to do it is to keep on, as we're moving towards somebody's airspace in so many times that on the occasion when you mean it, the other side doesn't take it seriously. And so this this game that gets played in, as it were, getting each side to go on to alert, then very quickly becomes the first stage in a militarized crisis. And that's what the Taiwanese are really worrying about, that they will be, as it were, or the world will be lulled into a sense of, of false security when they see these uh, weekly uh, incursions into their airspace or their air defence identification zones, um, which then become so normal that when the real one happens in three or four years' time, nobody will react. Michael, stay with us. This is Zitrap. The army has a global reputation for developing and improving the quality of its leaders, skills it's starting to teach around the world. In a moment, we'll find out about one such operation in the Caribbean. But first, let's look at how these abilities are developed. The Centre for Army Leadership, which is part of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst, was set up four years ago. It's led by Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp, who's written a book about the lessons others could learn from the army. The Centre for Army Leadership was set up in 2017 off the back of an institutional review into leadership. And off the back of that review were a number of recommendations, one of which was to set up a small team that drove the thinking uh, on behalf of the army into leadership. Um, And our core purpose is to champion leadership excellence across the, the army. And what made you want to write the book? It was really a team effort. We have rewritten the doctrine this year as well, which is our our philosophy, which was only written for the first time in 2016. But what we wanted to do was uh, explore that doctrine further. And really, we had two audiences in mind. Uh, The internal audience are serving personnel to give them a better understanding of what leadership means to us as an organisation, but also 
for an external audience and it was um, us offering a perspective on, on leadership. The, the army is often looked to as a reference point for leadership. It was a perspective that we could offer other parts of society, business, sport, academia on leadership, because we often believe that the fundamentals of leadership endure, even if the context in which it's enacted, uh, it, it may be different to that experience in the army. Now, you graduated from Sandhurst two decades ago. When you returned, what had changed and what was still the same? I guess that's the, the, the army in its entirety. There's much uh, that endures through time. And I guess the, the fundamentals of leadership and the culture in which uh, uh, we live in, the rich history and traditions that we, we lean on still exist and, and still play their part, certainly in, in driving the, the ethos uh, and, and the spirit of the army. But I think the training environment now, the educated environment is, is much more uh, dynamic, new generation c- coming in uh, that d- demand more. It's greater focus on the individual. So there's um, significant change, I think, in the, in the way that training is delivered. Um, but the, the core of what we, we do still remains the same. And ultimately, the core purpose of why we're here uh, still endures. And how would you sum up the main qualities of a good leader? That's a very good question. The thing is about leadership, it's firstly, it's very personal. But I think it's someone ultimately that has moral courage and their values sit at the core of their character and they live those every day. I think it's about people who understand and care for the people that they're leading, that are able to understand the context in which they are operating uh, in and translate to that to their people. Uh, and ultimately, the, the, they manage to uh, combine both the individuals they're leading, the teams that they're cohering together, but bring those together in the pursuit of what we call the mission. So the end state, the, the task that you're seeking to achieve. And presumably, not every element of army leadership is transferable to the civilian world. I think the context is different, inevitably. Um, the very nature of our role, particularly in the land environment, particularly in the, the army, whether it be combat on the, on the battlefield or operations such as we saw recently in, in Kabul, um, looking to extract our Afghan partners. That sort of context is very different, but, but absolutely the fundamentals of, of knowing yourself, of, of caring for your people, knowing your people, building cohesive teams, building ethos and esprit de corps, shared purpose, translate across, across all, all elements of society, not just the military. And can you see threads that link military leadership styles over the centuries, something from today that, say, Wellington would have recognised? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the army, the, the, the sort of nature of our profession is we're, we're a people organisation. And the way leadership has been enacted, of course, has, has changed as, as society changes and, and, and norms and expectations change. But uh, some of those fundamental tenets will endure throughout the centuries. It's still about inspiring and motivating people in the most testing of circumstances, whether they be on the, on the battlefields of, of, of France in, in 1815 or, or the recent, uh, our recent experiences in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And what do you think are the biggest challenges facing the army in the coming years? Probably the biggest challenge, and this will be replicated across not just the, the army or defence, but across many organisations, is just the pace of change. Um, society is, is, is rapidly changing ar- around us, and the leader's role is all about, as I said, understanding that context and being able to translate that for, for, for their people. And it's about remaining uh, relevant. But I think the pace of change is, is going to be um, some of the present some of the biggest challenges for, for our leaders 
going forward and for the army, and particularly the, the complexity that, that that offers. Lieutenant Colonel Langley Sharp and his book, The Habit of Excellence, is out now. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, Langley Sharp there talking about the pace of change in the military. To what extent is that driven by those at the very top? Oh, uh, totally. Um, the, the very top has got to commit itself to what it's trying to achieve. You've got to sweat the detail and you've got to stick with it. It's no good just laying out a, a map for change. You've then got to, from the top, got to push it through day after day after day. And for people lower down, as Langley Sharp absolutely rightly says, the boys and girls you command have got to know who you are and you are a commander all the time. And you've got to make clear to them who you are, what you represent, what you want, and that what you're trying to do, you're doing for their their greater effectiveness. And those are the messages that have got to be uh, translated. There's a sort of an eternal verity in all of that that runs, as Langley Sharp says, from 1815 through to 2021. Well, every year, people from armed forces across the globe are sent to the south of England to learn military leadership skills at Sandhurst. But now the Royal Military Academy has gone on tour, launching commissioning courses overseas. The pandemic has delayed things, but finally trainers from Sandhurst have been able to head to Belize. And our reporter Hannah King was with them. When Sandhurst agreed, it was like, yes, we're there. Commander of the Belize Defence Force, Brigadier General Stephen Ortega, had a problem. As all their officer commissioning is done overseas in the US, Canada and the UK, it can take anywhere between one and four years to get their officers back in normal times. Then, of course, there was COVID. Let's go, let's go! With Sandhurst delivering their course to them at home in the jungle, it's enabled them to create an entire 3rd Battalion. This is Captain Matt Tilley, second in command of the Sandhurst team, and Captain Mark Smith, one of their globetrotting instructors. Sandhurst has never done anything like this this before. To physically lift a part of itself beyond the gates of Camberley and have an effect globally, I think it's fantastic. Sandhurst, uh, its reputation precedes it. And all we're doing now is, is just opening that model up and, and encouraging that model overseas. Now, it's, it's not altruistic. We're, you know, we're not doing it just because it's a good thing to do. We're doing it because it, it means when there is a crisis and when we have to operate with these countries in the future, that, as I say, we're on the same model and the same language. The cadets have given up much to be here. Sandhurst were scheduled to come almost two years ago. Since then, due to COVID, the students have been kept together, held at readiness, constantly training, so they'd be ready as soon as Sandhurst could come. It's meant months away from family, not knowing when they could return. Officer Cadet Zarina Francisco hasn't seen her four-year-old daughter in months. She's four years old, Ziani Burgess. She, she's my life. I haven't had much communication with her. But one thing that I keep in mind is that she's my motivation and she's the reason why I am here. As a father, uh, it brings it home. My daughter's three, she'll be four in two days, but they are missing multiple special occasions in their children's life. They're living with relatives, they're being supported. Just the determination, the positive energy that they always bring for me is, uh, is really inspiring. And when we got here, it's uh, how fast can you go, Sandhurst? How much can you teach us in the five weeks? Um, hence the reason I maybe look a little bit more tired than I would otherwise want to look. Parade will advance. Right, turn. The hope is this model can be repeated and repeated across the world. If we ever need to work with others in conflict, everyone then will be talking the same Sandhurst language. 
Hannah King with that report from Belize. And finally this week, it's five years since the publication of the Chilcot Report, a devastating condemnation of the failings of Tony Blair's government, both before and after the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Military action in Iraq might have been necessary at some point, but in March 2003, there was no imminent threat from Saddam Hussein. Above all, the lesson is that all aspects of any intervention need to be calculated, debated and challenged with the utmost rigour and when decisions have been made, they need to be implemented fully. Sadly, neither was the case in relation to the UK government's actions. Sir John Chilcott died this week at the age of 82. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, when he was appointed, some said he was a carefully chosen, safe pair of hands, not expected to rock the boat, but it wasn't like that in the end, was it? Uh, no, well, it wasn't, it wasn't. In a way, he was a safe pair of hands because he would do it properly and he commanded enormous respect. He was the right person to appoint. The problem, of course, is that it took so long and it became such a big sprawling report that although it was devastating, it lost some of its impact because of the sheer time and size that the whole thing turned out to to require. And do you think the political, military and intelligence establishment have actually learned from the mistakes Chilcott pointed out? Some parts of it certainly have. I mean, there's a sort of Chilcott checklist now, which does exist. And I understand it's in it's it's in, it's laminated as a, as a, a sort of a, a chart, which is brought up at meetings to say the Chilcott principles. I mean, are we adhering to these principles, the do's and don'ts. Um, whether people take notice of it or not, I don't know, but it, it is around. It hasn't just been forgotten about because I think there's a sense within British government they don't want to have to go through this again and they don't want to make the sort of mistakes that Chilcott exposed that they made in Iraq and also uh, in Afghanistan. And in that light, do you think a consequence of his report is the government's re- reluctance to consider any similar investigation into events in Afghanistan? Yes. I mean, I think the, the government knows that if it investigates Afghanistan to the same forensic detail, it will take a long time and it will become controversial. And they'd rather have, in a sense, you know, a, a, not a quick and dirty report, but something that was quick and a bit more superficial that, that gave everyone the answers that they want. Chilcott provided chapter and verse to what we all basically understood. I think the same would be the case in Afghanistan. We all know what the story is, but it would be helpful if an official historian could be given access to the documents and said, look, you've got three years, look at the documents, give us the chapter and verse and then we can put the whole thing to bed. Professor Michael Clark, thank you. And that's it for this week. My thanks to all of my guests. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP and at bfbs.com slash SITREP. You can listen back to past programmes and find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.